Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m., both online and in person. Now, in person, we are here at our building on Hill Road in the Oak Grove neighborhood. Uh, We have small groups that meet throughout the week. We gather together on Sunday mornings for prayer, Bible study, community, and worship. We have kids' church. We have youth group on Tuesday nights. And if you want more information, you can just email us. Uh, office at faithonhill.com. Now, my name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. In addition to our Sunday mornings, we have podcasts that release throughout the week, and you can subscribe to those on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill, and you'll find our 20-minute Bible study, our Starting Points podcast, our Talk About Anything podcast, and this uh, Sunday morning uh, Bible study as well. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of the Revelation, chapter 11 as we continue our study in the Word of God. So starting in verse 15, we pick up where we left off last week. Now, it's last week where there was a pause. There there were seven seals that were securing and sealing up the scroll that Jesus took in chapter 5. And in chapter 6, Jesus began to open those seals. And when each seal was opened, and when we say seal, we don't mean like uh, the the aquatic animal, nor do we mean the the singer from the 90s. Uh, We mean a wax seal like you would see on an old-timey letter. And they would put a little bit of hot wax on the letter, and it would seal the letter up. You know, now we lick the envelope. Back then, they would put a little wax on it. And then somebody might press their signet ring in to indicate this is who it's from. This shows that this is my seal. And if anybody opens it, uh, you know, they're, and they're not supposed to, that's a punishable crime. Jesus takes the scroll, which can either represent the authority of God or the title deed to the earth. There's different opinions about it. I think the bigger thing is what happens when he does. Each time he pops open a seal, a judgment comes against the earth. And the seventh and final seal is so big and so massive, it, can, it can't be expressed as like one thing. And it's divided up into seven trumpets being blown by seven angels. And the sixth trumpet was blown and there was a pause. Just as there was a pause between the sixth and the seventh seal, there's now a pause between the sixth and the seventh angel. And we talked about that last week, but now the seventh trumpet is about to be blown. And the seventh trumpet is so big and expansive and massive, it can only be described by being broken up. And this time it's seven bowls full of the judgment of God, and they are going to be poured out by an angel. And so each time one of the angels pours out one of these bowls, it pours out judgment and justice onto the earth. Verse 15, chapter 11 says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then the temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple, the ark of his covenant, 
And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. So the final seventh trumpet is sounded, and there is rejoicing and praise and worship in heaven for the victory of God and the downfall of a world of wickedness. And, and it's, it describes those who were full of anger. It, is, it describes uh, judgment coming for the dead. It describes rewarding the prophets and the people who revere the name of God and destroying those who destroy the earth. It's not what we're talking about. Quick pause. One of the most contentious, highly debated, and I don't know, poignant, it's been the argument of our day for as long as I've been alive, is climate change. And I'll say this, as long as I've been alive and I have lived mostly on the West Coast of America and to a small extent, I lived for a time in England and they take things very seriously. I remember living in England when America pulled out of the Kyoto Accords and I had British friends that said, how can you do this? How can you Americans not care about the earth? And I, I said to them, you know what, today, this very day, this is a true story. We, I was walking in downtown Manchester and I saw somebody who had been, you know, gotten some like to go from McDonald's and they're walking down, they're eating their burger and they wrap up and they wad up the wrapping and to their right within arm's reach is a garbage can. All that they have to do is wrap up that wrapping stick out their arm and drop it. They don't even have to move their steps. They can keep walking straight and just drop it into the garbage can. And instead they wrapped it up and they threw it onto the street. And, and I said, and, and England, you know, as frustrated as I am as like how little recycling we do here, England was way less when I lived there. And so my, my point is this, there are people on both sides who are angry at both sides who talk past each other. And I'm no interest in getting into that debate. I had friends that were so, so angry when America pulled out of the Kyoto Accords. And I said, look at how polluted your rivers are. I said, I said where I'm from in Seattle, at the time, you know, I grew up in Seattle. And, and so I said, where I'm from, I can go swim in the rivers. But I said, every river around here is poisoned and polluted. What, what are you guys doing about that? I said, you know, I said, you walk down the street and yeah, you see some litter. And this is more so back... 15, 20 years ago, but I said, yeah, you see some litter, but not like this. And, and what, do, what are you guys doing about that? And, and so we have these things where we care so passionately about something and then we don't see the, uh, the inconsistencies. You know, it's like the, the stories of people who, uh, celebrities who go around talking about climate change while they're flying around in their private jets uh, and they don't seem to see the inconsistency or don't care about the inconsistency. At the same time, uh, folks in the church know that I, I, I tend to watch these shows about people living up in Alaska or the far north. And uh, what's interesting to me is that the, the people on these shows tend to be very, very conservative politically. And all of them believe in climate change. Anybody who lives in certain parts of the world, doesn't matter your political view, you believe in it. I'll just say this. God cares about us taking care of the planet. Does that mean that we have to uh, worship Mother Nature or, uh, you know, have these, these kind of like virtue signal policies that don't actually save the planet? Sure. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. But God seems to care. And I think it's worth mentioning. 
Now, it says, then the temple in heaven was opened, and within the temple was seen the Ark of His Covenant. Now, that gets people interested because there was a movie, Ark of the Covenant, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, and it's been missing. And anytime something's missing, people are interested in it. And there's a legend that the, um, the Ark of the Covenant ended up down in, uh, was it Ethiopia? And uh, the Coptic Church has made a big deal about that. And it's, it's actually like part of like just cultural life down there. I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about this. And I was like, whoa, that's interesting. I don't think it matters if the Ark of the Covenant still exists. I don't think it matters if uh, this is the same Ark of the Covenant or if this is some sort of symbolic thing. What I think really matters is this. What is it saying? It's saying a couple of things. The first thing that it's saying is, I want you to key in on this. In Revelation chapter 11, these two witnesses appear. We talked about them last week. Where do they go? They go to Jerusalem. What do they do? They do things that are straight out of the Old Testament prophet playbook. Who are they? Now, as I said last week, I don't think it matters. At the same time, it's highly likely that they are either literally uh, these figures from the Old Testament of legend, you know, uh, Elijah, Moses, or Enoch. Or they're so symbolic, so representative, that people will understand that they kind of stand in the spirit and the power of those men. And now the temple in heaven is opened and you see the ark. And in a minute, we're going to read more and you're going to see that this is a very Jewish story. That God using John is speaking to his people, the Jewish people. And he is speaking to them, hey, this, this work that I am doing, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I am the God who established the covenant with you. And the Ark of the Covenant, people make a big deal about finding the Ark. And as somebody who likes history and archaeology, I would be amazing if we found the Ark. It would be a fantastic archaeological historical find. But the ark's not what's important. It's the covenant maker. Who is it that made the ark of the covenant? Whose presence symbolically rested on the ark of the covenant? It's the God who created the heavens and the earth. It's the God that we serve. The only true God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so people could make a big deal like, ooh, the ark of the covenant has been magically transported to heaven. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's a new ark. Maybe it's symbolic. I don't know but I'm more interested in what it's representing and who it's representing and who it's speaking to. God is speaking very directly to his people, the Jewish people. It's not to the church in this moment and in this time. It's very dangerous when we start to think everything is about us. It's very dangerous. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, that after this, a great sign appeared in the heaven. Uh, I read one translated translation that put it this way, I saw a significant sign in the heavens, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Well, who's this woman? You know, last week I really had intended to talk about which books of the Bible do you need to read first? And especially for the book of the Revelation, because I do believe that there are certain books of the Bible that are really, really helpful to understand in the book of Revelation. One of them is the book of Daniel, but I think the most primary one to understanding the book of the Revelation is the book of Genesis. 
And there's this woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the crown of 12 stars on her head. And if you know the book of Genesis, you're going to go, oh, I remember this. There was this guy, Joseph. And Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. And Joseph had this dream that the sun and the moon and the stars, specifically, uh, you know, 12 stars bowed down to him. And whatever else anybody else thought, his brothers and his mother and father all took this to mean that someday they would bow down to him even though he was youngest at the time. And what you have to understand is in their culture, age was part of rank. You never bowed. A father never bowed to the son. The son bowed to the father. Mother never bowed to the child. The child honored the mother. An older child never bowed to the younger child. The younger child bowed to the older child. Now, as an oldest child, I think that's a wonderful tradition and one that we should really key into. You know, um, It's got to be hard for my, my youngest son because I'm an oldest child. My wife's an oldest child. My oldest child's an oldest child. So we only have one youngest in the whole house. And we don't have any sympathy. <laughs> but this is how we understand what's going on is by reading other parts of the Bible. As we read other parts of the Bible, we understand the Bible fully. The greatest commentary, the greatest comment on the Bible that you can get is the Bible itself. The Bible isn't just one book. It's 66 books written by over 40 authors over a 1,500-year period, primarily in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament with some Aramaic and a few other uh, local languages thrown in from time to time. But it's not just one book. Genesis speaks to Revelation. First Peter speaks to 1 Timothy. 1 Corinthians is informed by the Gospels. The Gospels quote heavily from the Old Testament and so on and so on and so on. Daniel is such an important and key book for understanding the book of the Revelation. This woman is, is representative of, of Israel, of the Jewish people. Now, does that mean it's the nation of Israel? Yes and no. Um, all Jews are equally Jewish. And uh, I... I ran into a fellow once who said, well, I, I support the people of Israel and I think all Christians should support the, the people of Israel, but I just have such a hard time with those New York Jews. And as I talked to him more and more, I realized that he hated American Jews. He hated Jews. He loved Jews as long as they lived in Israel, but if they were here in America, he hated them. He was anti-Semitic. And I said, you can't hate one and not the other. It's not how that works. You don't get to pick and choose. They're all God's people. And I believe that God has a unique plan for the Jewish people. I believe that's in the Bible. I believe the promises of God are never revoked. And there are promises that God has made to his people that have not come to pass yet. It is significant. This woman clothed with these markers of the Jewish people. And it says she was pregnant and cried out with pain and was about to give birth. And then another significant sign appeared in the heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. And its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth that it might devour her child the moment it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And here he is quoting uh, from Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. After, the child, after her child was snatched up to God and to his throne, 
The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Who's the woman? Israel, the Jewish people. Who's the child? Jesus, the Messiah, who was birthed from Israel, specifically from the line of David. He is the king of the Jews, the rightful heir to the throne of David. And it says that the dragon was trying to destroy the woman. And if he couldn't destroy the woman, then he would kill the child as she gave birth. And if you know the story of the scriptures, all throughout history, the enemy was trying to destroy the Jewish people, wipe them out, cut them off. In Egypt, when they were slaves and the, the Pharaoh ordered the midwives to kill all of the, the male babies, uh, you know, when they went into the promised land and their enemies surrounded them constantly, uh, when they uh, were under attack in between the Old and the New Testament um, and, and the events that, that led to Hanukkah and uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, Haman in the book of Esther, you know, trying to basically do a, a, a first hol- a preemptive holocaust against the Jews. And they tried and they tried and they tried and God protected his people. And then when Jesus was born, what happened? Herod tried to kill all of the babies in Bethlehem. There was even that, even then there was an attempt at murder. And God protected. And we know that Jesus after his resurrection, did go and ascend to the Father and to his throne in heaven. And then what happened? Those who say that the book of Revelation is past events. It was written by John, but it's either describing things in the past. There's those who say, uh, you know, it was written uh, describing past events, or it was written by John describing events like 10 years in the future for him, written around 60 AD, describing events that happened in 70 AD. There is no historical analogy for this verse here where it says in verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God that she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. We don't have that. Um, in fact, many who say that this is all past events would discount the Jewishness of this chapter because there's this theology that sometimes gets referred to as replacement theology, the idea that the church has fully replaced Israel and any promise uh, in the Old Testament for the people of, of Israel are now their promises for the church. And I believe that God has grafted the church on to the people of Israel the way that you can graft one plant onto another Um, I believe that we are the people of God as well. We are the bride of Christ, uh, that we are the people that God is working through. And that includes Jewish people today. Uh, Our most recent Talk About Anything podcast episode, we had uh, Pastor Andrew Hirschman on, who is ethnically Jewish, uh, was raised in a um, a non-religious but culturally Jewish home and, and became a Christian. And, and there are plenty of people that I've met over the years who are ethnically Jewish, were religiously Jewish, culturally Jewish, and they became believers. They became Christians. And so God is working through the church, absolutely. But I believe that what happened was this. When the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and when Jesus died and rose and the church was birthed, it's almost like God had a stopwatch and it hit pause. And now we live in this age of grace, this age of the church. God is giving the grace 
that he gives through Jesus to the whole world. But there will come a time, and I believe it's when this last seven-year period that's talked about in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, that I think that the majority of the book of the Revelation takes place in. There will be a time when God unpauses that stopwatch. And during this time, he will protect his people. Now, it says that she's going to flee to the wilderness. There, there are those who think, and I, I sort of lean toward this opinion, that what this means is 1,260 days. Now, you might recognize this because it says in chapter 12, or sorry, chapter 11, the previous chapter, verse 3, I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Interesting. Now, if you were to divide 1,260 days up in a 365-day-a-year calendar, which is what we live under, it's a little less than three and a half years. And so, seven years divided by two, that's three and a half years. There's two ways to look at this. Either the, the witnesses will begin their ministry and their public witness in Jerusalem just after, a few weeks, a few months after the beginning of the final seven-year period, and the Jewish people will flee into the wilderness just after uh, the second half of that final seven-year period begins. Or, this is speaking of a 360-day-year calendar, which is what uh, was in existence in ancient times. doesn't matter to me either way. I think the bigger point is this. In this second half of the seven-year period, it's called the tribulation. The Jews, and specifically those in Jerusalem, and specifically, I believe, those who fear God. We know that at the end of chapter 11 last week, there was that earthquake in Jerusalem. And then unlike every other time, there's been a judgment. And it says the people of the world refused to repent. There was a judgment. The people of the world refused to repent. And here in chapter 11, there was a judgment against Jerusalem. And then people in Jerusalem begin to call on the name of the Lord. And I believe that God will somehow lead them out into a safe place. Uh, there's those who believe that it's the, the rock city of Petra out in the Jordan wilderness. Uh, I don't know. I, th- I think that's possible, but who knows? I think the bigger idea is this idea that God is not done with his people, Israel, and that God has a plan for them, and that God will, in this time of their trouble, sometimes it's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble, which Jacob, of course, one of the patriarchs, that he will protect them. And that matters for us as Christians, especially people like me who aren't Jewish. Because think about this. If God will keep promises made thousands and thousands of years ago to a people that have rejected him for thousands of years, how much more is he going to keep his promise to you and to me? Friends, we're living in uncertain days. We're living in troubled times. We're living in days when you look around and you say, Lord, are you still with us? Lord, are you still here? Lord, have you forgotten us? And I believe that God has never forgotten you. He's never forgotten me. He's never forgotten us. And that the promises he has made to us individually and collectively as a church, he will not back out on. Even in uncertain days. It says in verse 7 that then the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven and the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who led the whole world astray, and he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So the 
the dragon is representative of Satan. Uh, his angels, where it says that he took a third of the stars and the heavens down with him, uh, I think the reasonable understanding here is that uh, a third of the angels fall with Satan. Um, now, it says earlier that the dragon had many heads and it had different horns and different crowns. And if you remember back to when we studied the book of Daniel, uh, these things can be indicative of different kings, different rulers, different peoples. And I just say this, there have been rulers, kings, and peoples who have been demonically led, demonically inspired. If you think that the supernatural forces of, of evil and the devil were not directly involved with certain leaders in certain places over the centuries and the millennia, you're greatly mistaken. That there are people that we, resar- we regard uh, as infamous and we, re- we regard as great. As I read the Bible, Alexander the Great, right? He's this highly regarded figure in human history. Demonic. It's possible that Genghis Khan, demonic. It's possible that, I mean, I don't think anybody have a hard time if I said like Hitler was demonic. But there are these, these kingdoms and rulers and powers. And, and we might look and go, oh man, they were the great forces of history. Missing that it was the devil himself who was behind them. But they're not able to overcome and they're hurled down. We know from Job and from other places in the scripture that the devil accuses the people of God. The devil accuses, and at this point, he's told no more. And he's finally rejected from this ability to access heaven in some way. Do we understand fully what that means? No, these are mysterious things. But we heard a loud voice in verse 10 from heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. How do we triumph? First and foremost, we triumph because of the blood of Jesus. Our triumph is because of what Jesus has done. They also triumph because of their testimony, that they were faithful till the end. All of us, as we talked about last week, give witness to what we have seen and experienced. We, we share what we know to be true. Sometimes that testimony is in action, sometimes in words, sometimes it's in long, uh, you know, relation, relational testimony, sometimes it's in quick, short interactions, and there are those for whom giving testimony has meant death, dying, and, and here they are being, you know, heralded as those who didn't even shrink from death to proclaim that Jesus is the risen Lord. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and all you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. And here begins the final three and a half years of, of you know, earth before Jesus comes back. Now, there are those who would say, well, see, this is when the rapture happens, is that the, the remaining believers are taken out, and then, um, you know, the devil's knocked down and the second three and a half years, that's the, you know, the fury and the wrath of God against the devil in the world. But this is interesting. Verse 13, it says that when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a times out of the serpent's reach. I'm not an expert, 
but I've read those who are. And the indication here is that times, times, and half a time is another way of saying three and a half years. You know, it's kind of like how you, you ever heard like the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and, you know, it's like four score and seven years ago or whatever it was. And uh, it's like nobody talks like that anymore. But that was just a way that they would say instead of saying three and a half years, they would say a time, a times, and half a times. So for three and a half years, the second half of this great tribulation period, uh, this the people of, of the Jewish people, the people of the woman uh, will give birth, uh, who gave birth, they will be protected. They will be out of the serpent's reach. Verse 16. But the earth helped the woman by opening up its mouth and swallowing. Oh, sorry. Verse 15. Then from the mouth, from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. I don't know what this is. I believe it's probably metaphorical. Whatever happens, there's this final like desperate attempt to destroy the Jewish people. And then it says in verse uh, 16 that the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So however it was that the devil tries to destroy the Jewish people, God will not allow it to happen. And he will show his might and his strength and his hand and they will be, be prevented from being harmed. Verse 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who kept God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. That's interesting. There will still be people on the earth during those final three and a half years who profess faith in Jesus. Adam, I thought you said the church is removed before the great tribulation period. I believe that to be true. I believe that the church is removed. I believe that because the rapture is taught in the book of 1 Thessalonians. I believe that because this idea of being removed before judgment is seen throughout the scriptures. Yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through the fiery furnace. But Daniel seemed to have been removed. Where was he? Yes, Noah went through the ark. But Enoch was removed. Where was he? We see these things where judgment comes, but yet some are removed. So I do believe that. I don't want to fight with anybody over it. Like I'm, I'm totally uninterested in dividing with people over it, but I do believe it. We have this third group. They're mysterious. And I don't claim to have all the answers on this. But apparently there will be people that come to faith in Jesus during the final seven-year tribulation period. What are they called? They're not the church. They're not the Jewish people either. They're different. The Jewish people have been taken to the wilderness and they're protected from the serpent's reach. It's an interesting thought to me that if you, if you read this correctly, my friends who uh, don't believe in the rapture and my friends who, um, who believe that uh, the church will go through the tribulation period, okay, fine, let's say that's the case. They also don't, most, most of my friends who believe that don't think that the Jewish people are that important anymore. But yet here they are. If you're going to be consistent in that view, hold to it then and see this. The Jewish people are taken out of reach. They are, in a sense, raptured, I guess you could say. They're, they're taken out to the wilderness and they will be protected for the three and a half years. I believe the church is removed. So who are these people who hold fast to God's commands and their testimony about Jesus? I can't say for certain, but it sure looks to me like there are people who believe in God. They come to faith during that time and they will enter the new kingdom that Jesus will establish. Now, how does that work? There's debate about this. People from all sides have just, just we don't know. Will the church and the Jewish people and this third group of tribulation believers, will we all 
get merged together, you know, in heaven? Or are we unique and separate? We don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And I don't find a, I don't find a lot of point in debating it. I know this. Even in the darkest moments, there are people coming to faith in Jesus. Even in the places that seem the most bleak, the most hopeless, and, and the most godless, there are remnant people who have faith. It's generally agreed by historians that the worst persecution against Christians ever was in Japan. I believe it was in the 1400s. And, the, and there's reports that there were rows and rows lining country lanes of crosses as they tried to exterminate all the Christians. But when the first Catholic missionaries came to Japan, they found, to their surprise, people who knew the name of Jesus in little villages, in rural and remote places. Despite their best efforts, even though in you know, Kyoto and Hiroshima and Tokyo and places like that where, where the seats of power were, the Christian faith might have been pushed out. It wasn't pushed out of Japan. God always leaves a remnant. Think of a place where you might think, oh, that's a godless place, a place that rejects Jesus. North Korea, uh, you know, Afghanistan, Iran, where, wherever, wherever it is you might think of, Dubai, you know, the, the Emirates. There are believers there. There are believers there. The Coptic church has survived and continued on despite millennia of being minimized and marginalized in North Africa. God always has a remnant of believers. And this group here, do I understand fully who they are, what they're doing? No. But I know that God's working. And here's where I want to come back to and here's what I want to end with. This whole story the sign that John sees, kind of retelling the story that God brought a people out of obscurity, the Jewish people, and out of the Jewish people came the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world. And the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and yet God still is faithful to them. And he is going to keep his promises to them. And they will see the son of David ruling on a throne in Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a few weeks in the book of the Revelation. And just as God will keep his promises to the Jewish people, he will keep his promises to his church. He will keep his promises to you, to me, and to us. The call on us is not whether God will keep his promises, not whether God will stay faithful. The question for us is, will we stay faithful? Verse 11, they triumphed over the world and the devil and the enemy by the blood of the lamb. That's the faithfulness of God. And by the word of their testimony, because they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I don't think anybody's going to try to kill us this week for our faith. But will we shrink from saying we believe God is true? We believe Jesus is Lord. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The ways of this world are the ways that lead to destruction. And if you think the world is just the people that you don't like over there, understand that the world is everything. Everything. Old, young, right, left, up, down, whatever. East Coast, West Coast, doesn't matter. Everything that is not of God, everything that is not of Jesus, that's the world. Will we love our lives so much or will we not shrink from our testimony? God will keep his promise. God will keep his promise. God will keep his promise. And it is his faithfulness, the blood of the lamb, that will deliver us from sin and death.
but will we stay true to that testimony? That's the question. That's the challenge. Friend, if you don't know if you have the assurance of salvation, then the invitation for you is to believe. If you do know you have Jesus in your life, then the invitation is to go deeper. And we want to invite you to go deeper. We go deeper in our small groups. We meet throughout the week. We have an online one. We have in-person ones. If you want to know more, you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. The invitation is to go deeper in our study of the Word of God, and that's why we have all these Bible teaching podcasts. The invitation is to go deeper, and wherever God is calling you to do, to reach out and to say, yes, I will go that way. I pray that God gives us the strength and the faith and the grace to do that. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.